Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Follow wherever you get your podcasts and stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode that looks at how businesses might tackle issues like climate change. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. This is going to be maybe a, another ignorant question, but um, where does poke come from? Is that Hawaiian? <laughs> It's a random question. Um, poke is a type of a raw fish, and it can be made out of any type of fish, of ahi tuna. This is Professor Tiffany Ng, talking to me from Honolulu, Hawaii, a place I've never been and know very little about. Hence the ignorant questions. We're getting to know each other. Isn't there like a coffee drink that gets you stoned? Oh, I know what you're, you're talking about, kava. Yeah, kava. <laughs> Break down the kava for me. What's going on with kava? (laughs) How do I get some of that? Now, Ben, here's where you're supposed to say, but I digress, because this, this isn't our story. Yeah, but we had to get comfortable, because Tiffany is about to help us tell a story about Hawaii that, according to a lot of people, has been told wrong. Maybe not told at all, for more than a century. It's a story about the most interesting man in the world that nobody has ever heard of or at least very few people outside of Hawaii. And even if you're in Hawaii, this man's story has still been told incorrectly, depending upon who you talk to. This man is Hawaii's last king, David Kalakua. So every April, um, there's a huge hula competition. They call it a Merry Monarch competition, and it's named after David Kalakaua. That's one of his nicknames, the Merry Monarch. It noted his um, supposed propensity to drink and revel and gamble. Aha. But how did that kind of characterization begin? It was started by his enemies. I'm Ben Brock Johnson, and you are listening to Endless Thread, the show featuring stories from the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. I am here with my producer and co-host, Emery Sievertson, and we are coming to you from Boston's NPR station, WBUR. Today's episode, The Original Most Interesting Man in the World. We are going to talk about this guy, who has an incredible story. He took a 281-day trip around the world. He embraced new technology in Hawaii and led a political fight for Hawaiian independence before effectively handing that independence over while looking down the barrel of a gun. He's also credited with bringing back Hawaii's original hula music, which you were just hearing a minute ago. 
And one of the interesting things we just learned about hula music is that it's not just a genre of music created in Hawaii. It's rooted in the island's mythology, in Polynesian culture. And legend says that hula was forged, literally, by Hawaii's volcano god. We also just learned that there are different kinds of hula. The woozy, wavy stuff with Western instruments and the more percussive, traditional style. Hula is one of Hawaii's rich native traditions, which makes it kind of ironic in a way that David Kalakaua, Hawaii's last king, can be credited with saving something that is considered a form of oral history, only to have his own history be the source of confusion, debate, and controversy. Which is why we're hearing from Tiffany. My dissertation um, looked at 19th century representations of Hawaii's last king, David Kalakaua, newspapers, uh, travel logs, and um, that comes out to about one million typescript pages. Do you, When you close your eyes, do you see, like, newsprint pages flying across the insides <laughs> of your eyelids? <laughs> now, I'm going to triple-check this pronunciation with you. Is it, is it, is it Kalakoa? So it's Kalakoa. Kalakoa. Oh, that's nice. Hey, you're quick. <laughs> I'm getting there. Are you native? I am. I'm, I'm part Hawaiian. I, I'm also Chinese, and I've got some English in me, some Irish, Spanish, Portuguese, French. Wow. Um, yeah, but, but that's common here, you know, because of um, my ancestors who, who came um, as, as, as immigrants. Hawaii's history is fascinating and, by some measures, heartbreaking. It was settled first by islanders from Polynesia, who eventually came into contact with European explorers and merchants. In 1820, the first missionaries arrived in Hawaii. And um, these missionaries were successful in Christianizing um, Native Hawaiians. And they were um, successful in developing relationships with the um, monarchs. Okay. And um, the monarchs began to... uh, trust them, these missionaries, and um, offered them government positions, and they accepted. What happens over time, according to Tiffany, is that the children of the Christian missionaries eventually come of age and take their own positions in the government of Hawaii. They run sugar plantations, and they become a small but powerful group of essentially white people who have a relatively big influence on what happens in Hawaii. There are also other factors. The missionaries brought diseases to the islands that killed a lot of Native people. Racism was clearly at play here as well. So there were building tensions that informed a lot of what has happened in Hawaii over the last 200 years. By the 1870s, those tensions were palpable. And they were further complicated by a lack of clarity on who was going to be the next king of Hawaii. When the last of the Kamehameha kings, Kamehameha V, died, it went to a, a distant cousin. Um, and then when he died without heir, the Constitution had provided that there would be an election. and um, An election for a king. And, yeah, you had to run for king. This is James L. Haley. He's not from Hawaii, and he's not a native. But he wrote a book called Captive Paradise, A History of Hawaii. James is from Texas. And believe it or not, there are parallels. Well, you know, Texas was an independent country for two months short of 10 years. Hmm. 
Uh, and after all those years researching Texas, I thought, wait a minute, what about that other republic that was annexed by the United States? Which is what got me into looking at Hawaii. James and Tiffany both point out that King Kalakaua's rise to the throne wasn't just unique. It was controversial. Kalakaua was a distant relative of close advisors to the first king of Hawaii, Kamehameha I. He was a politician, but he was running against an actual queen who was the widow of former King Kamehameha IV. She had the connection to the bloodline, but Kalakaua had a special skill set. He knew about American politicking, and he had been politicking in the legislature, making promises that he probably couldn't keep. Wheeling and dealing in Congress, under-the-table handshakes, false promises, the cornerstones of American politics. And all that dealing mattered come election time because the election for King of Hawaii was not a general election. There was not a, um, uh, a referendum. The people didn't get to vote. It was all inside the legislature. So uh, Kalakaua won that election by 39 votes to six. The result? Riots. The new king might have been great at convincing politicians to back him, but he hadn't secured the support of the Hawaiian people. The Ali'i Hale, which was their, <coughs> excuse me, their legislature, uh, was, was overrun with a mob. One of them was defenestrated and killed when he landed. Another dozen of the legislators were, were injured. And it took British and American Marines to quell uh, the rioting. So his reign did not begin well. Emory, true story, I just learned that defenestrated means thrown out a window. Just learned that. Really? That's like one of the first words I learned in Latin class. Well, good for you. Good for me. So this was clearly a, a controversial and surprise outcome of the election. It was. Now, once he settled in, uh, he, he was surprisingly good at the PR side of things, at... Uh, garnering public favor among among the things he did, for instance, he composed a national anthem, which Hawaii had never had. And he gauged the, the public sentiment just perfectly, knowing that the fervor for a national identity among the Hawaiians uh, would really unite behind uh, a national anthem, Hawaii Pono'i, which they did. Among the lines in this national anthem, by the way, is be loyal to your chief. So Kalakaua was watching his own back, too. But he was a gifted politician. Tiffany says he also had something else going for him. Oh, he was a handsome man. He stood at, I believe it was 6'3", at least. And everywhere he went, he would charm women. And women would uh, love to dance with him. Sounds like he, he charmed you. It, it does, doesn't wake up. And, <laughs> and his voice was melodic. He captured a lot of the people, you know, he met. And Kalakaua met a lot of people right off the bat. One of his first orders of business was a full tour of all the islands, where he greeted his new subjects, something that reinforced his connection to Hawaiian tradition. And also potentially worsened tensions with his skeptics. A good example of this, the missionaries that had come to Hawaii in 1820 banned public performances of hula for being a profane art form. 
Depending on what history you're reading, they may have also just convinced the royal family to ban it. Either way, Kalakua undid the ban. And he had it performed on the royal palace grounds for his uh, coronation and for his birthday. And there were week-long festivities, day and night, Native Hawaiian people dancing and chanting and singing. Um, that sounds nice. It, 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 it was. It was for a people whose traditions and whose culture, you know, were, were banned for a number of years. Mm. So this kind of nationalism was huge for the Hawaiian people. Hula wasn't just a dance. Hula was the heart of their culture. It was their history. It was their, uh, their whole traditional relation of their experience came through Hula. And Kalakaua, when he became king, was instrumental in reviving that uh, and other native art forms, native sports such as surfing that had been dying out. Uh, yeah, he was very interested in the survival of Hawaiian culture, and that is much to his credit. This is amazing to think about. An argument could be made that if it wasn't for King Kalakaua, we wouldn't know about surfing. King Kalakaua's policies returning Hawaiian culture to the islands started what's called the First Hawaiian Renaissance. But his focus went beyond the islands. He wanted the world to know what Hawaii had to offer. So, in 1881, Kalakaua went on an international goodwill tour. A big one. 281 days big. So on this trip in 1881, he, you know, he arrives at these places, these small towns in Europe, and he's meeting with the mayor, and there's a big group of people, you know, the town people come out, and they decorate the streets, and the band comes out, and, you know, there's a parade for the king, and, I mean, the king up from this little island chain in Hawaii, and and yet, you know, thousands of people come out for him, and this was David Kalakoa, and this was not uncommon for him. This trip was the beginning of a pretty impressive list of firsts attached to the king's name. First monarch ever in the history of the world to circumnavigate the globe. This fact, by the way, is how we found this story in the Today I Learned Reddit community. He was welcomed into the imperial courts of Japan and China, the Khedive of Egypt. Kalakoa was also the first reigning monarch to visit the U.S., And early in his reign, he signs a reciprocity treaty with the U.S. that explodes sugar production in Hawaii and also brings more power and influence to plantation owners that don't necessarily love some of his other policies. Right, which we'll come back to. Also, on one of his trips to the States, Kalakaua meets a guy named Thomas Edison. He was also very enamored of technology. Uh, In fact, when he built the Iolani Palace, it had... Uh, electric lights and running water before the White House did in Washington. Hawaii's Royal Palace, one of two Hawaiian palaces that are the only royal palaces to this day in the United States. Very soon after he became king, there was a scientific delegation came to Hawaii to watch the transit of Venus across the surface of the sun. And he was so fascinated by the the instruments and what these people were doing and their calculations that he really made a nuisance of himself uh, to the <laughs> scientists who had been given, you know, free accommodations and stuff like that. He was fascinated by that kind of thing. 
So this is all interesting evidence of the real mix of Kalakaua's character. On the one hand, he's doing his work to reintroduce ancient culture and customs in Hawaii. And on the other, he's a techie, worldly person, fascinated by the future. Here, he's signing treaties with the U.S., but then over here, he's strengthening ties with countries that he hopes will protect Hawaii from being annexed by the U.S. But uh, the American business community in Hawaii uh, was was incensed that he was out there spending all this money. Oh, he's just a wastrel, you know, we ought to be running the country because we're white and we're Americans and these dark people can't do it for themselves, which is a very live sentiment, by the way. And this, this is where Kalakaua's story gets even more complicated. The history of politics is a history of popularity and betrayal. More on that betrayal in a minute. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode covers the tricky politics of business and climate change. Until you can get a bipartisan conversation around climate change, we can never ignore the politics of this. And so, you know, we need to deal with it. Follow Is Business Broken wherever you get your podcasts and stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. As the saying goes, history is written by the victors. So remember at the very beginning when Tiffany mentioned that one of Kalakaua's nicknames, the Merry Monarch, came from a reputation for drinking and gambling? Well, there are a lot of stories like that, about his lack of self-control, even from when he was a kid. His childhood nickname among his, uh, the other children in the royal school, his nickname was Taffy. Taffy? Taffy, for his sweet tooth. Depending, again, on where you're getting your story from, Kalakaua was almost opposite things. He was handsome. Or not. He was a shrewd politician. He wasn't. He brought about the first Hawaiian renaissance, or he sold his country out. To say that there are sensitivities about how Hawaii's history is written and who has been writing it is an understatement. Here's James Haley again. Most of the scholarship has been Anglo. They don't speak Hawaiian. And so there is this wealth of documents uh, lying all over the state that need to be picked up and read and assayed for their historical import and all that sort of thing, because their voice hasn't really been heard yet. Tiffany says that she took a class as a graduate student at the University of Manoa, 
about the Hawaiian monarchy. Everyone had to do an oral presentation. Unknowingly, we, we all chose David Kalakaua. Okay. And they went first, and they were trashing him left and right. And I thought, how can this be? You know, at the center of Hawaiian education, this is the University of Hawaii. How, how can, you know, these Hawaiian majors, Hawaiian language majors, Hawaiian studies majors, how can these students be learning this kind of, you know, information? Where did this come from? Part of where it comes from is one of the most infamous moments in Kalakaua's rule and the rumors that his enemy started to basically create that moment. It's called the Bayonet Constitution. It started in some ways because the king wanted more financial power. The powerful business interests in the government were accusing the king of being wasteful. Meanwhile, the country is grappling with the growing industry around a powerful and popular substance, opium. And the king jumps into the process for licensing opium in Hawaii. He cuts a deal with one supplier while other parts of the government want another supplier. And a lot of stuff happened, which we won't go into, but suffice it to say that this opium deal was the last straw for the business powers in Hawaii, which, remember, were closely connected to descendants of the missionaries. And those business powers set out to not only undercut the new opium policy, but also to attack the power of the monarchy itself. And so this white oligarchy, or this small group of um, powerful businessmen, they're, um, they're getting nervous. And they're getting desperate and very um, anxious. And they write up their own constitution. And they take it to King Kalakaua at 2 in the morning on July 6, 1887. They go into the palace and they find the king. And they hold him at bayonet, at, at gunpoint. And they force him to sign this constitution. Whoa. And, um, and he does. He does because, I mean, many reasons. Um, but in essence, they've taken over his um, executive powers. They've changed the voting rights. Um, and really now all we have is a king who reigns but doesn't rule. By many accounts, this is the beginning of the end. Not just for the king himself but for Hawaiian independence. And it was the first step in the business community taking over the country. So I think probably the native view of Kalakaua today would be uh, that he was pretty much a victim of the, the early stages of the white takeover, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. By 1898, the year of the Spanish-American War, Hawaii had been annexed by the U.S. By 1900, it was a territory. In 1959, it became a state. To go back to where we started, I began with Texas annexation. The difference between Texas and Hawaii is that we wanted in. I'm speaking as a Texan. Texas wanted into the Union. And just walking around, oh, anywhere, whether it, it, it's Honolulu or whether it's Kailua Kona, you, you get a very Pacific nation feel. And you wonder why on earth is this place even in the United States? What do you think uh, King Kalakwa's thoughts would be on on Hawaii becoming a U.S. state? Oh, no. Uh, oh, he would be very um, upset because he spent, he gave himself, really, to preserve Hawaii's independence. You know, in efforts to 
to work against Americanization and Westernization. People have had to make hula and language and, you know, even voyaging stronger and kind of grow that um, appreciation and understanding of those traditions because we've become a state. And it's worth saying here that the fight for Hawaiian independence is very much alive. Land has been given to the secession movement there. It's called the Nation of Hawaii. It's still a debate. Kalakaua was just a perfect early example of a leader caught in these hurricane-like socioeconomic forces that have really been hitting Hawaii over the last 200 years. Someone who knew the importance of the island's native history and was striving mightily to couple that history with the global future. A goal that stayed just outside of his grasp. And here's where we have to talk about something that stayed just outside of our grasp while working on this story. Yet another example of the most interesting man in the world you've never heard of being associated with a historic technological event. It's connected with the king's death, which, maybe fittingly, happened outside of Hawaii. So in 1891, Kalakaua um, is dying in San Francisco in the Palace Hotel. And the innovative man he was, he was interested prior to then in this uh, voice recording Uh that Thomas Edison was, you know, popular for. And Kalakaua on his deathbed was asked, if you had the opportunity to record your voice, would you accept it? And he said yes. And so they brought the recorder to his hotel room and asked him to say something. You know, and he was very ill at that time. And what he said was, in Hawaiian, tell them that I tried. And that's all he said. The actual wax cylinder is housed at the Bishop Museum here in Honolulu. They, Because it's so old and deteriorated, they haven't been able to listen to it again. Perhaps in a few years with um, a more advanced laser technology, mm-hmm. they'd be able to replay it. Emery. Ben. Do you feel like you learned anything? I learned a great deal. (laughs) Do you feel like you learned anything? I learned a lot. Basically, everything in this episode was a thing I didn't know before. Right, same. This is a good moment to shout out some Redditor comments, by the way, that helped to inspire and inform this episode. Cool? Cool. All right, I'm going to start with Square White Shoe, who wrote, T.I.L. Hawaii had a kick-ass-looking king, which... I think is objectively true, actually. Yeah. And how about H. Keddy, or H-K-E-D-I, who wrote in part, I see Kalakaua as a vital bridge for Hawaii in its past. He managed to balance traditional ways with the massive changes in the world that happened in the late 19th century. Also seems objectively true. And here I thought was an interesting exchange. Uh, Flange? I think it is. Yeah, I like Flange. Flange wrote, I must be ashamed to my land. I'm Hawaiian and had Hawaiian history classes, and I didn't even know this. And then CKHK3 responded, Don't worry, it's okay. Most natives don't know the history, especially if you went to public school. Public school pushes the westernized agenda. Many natives learn the history and culture either from their families or on their own. One question I have. Mm Mm-hmm. 
is do we have any right to tell this story? It's a fair question. Um, I think, you know, it's a story that deserves to be heard. And I think for now, I'm glad we did it. You know, I, I, as we said, we learned a lot. I hope other people learned a lot, too. And I'm sure that we'll learn a lot more as the years go on. That's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> Why? You think we have no right? No, no, no. no. I rewind the no, tape. I feel the, sa- I feel the same way. And I also think that what is interesting about this story to me is that Hawaii's history is, I think, not that well known by random people on the mainland of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's now maybe not necessarily as a good thing, according to some, but it's now part of our country. And so we should know about this stuff. Right on. One last thing. We had the extreme pleasure of talking to a moderator of Reddit's Hawaii community. His name was Patrick. He was super helpful, but the topics of our conversation with him didn't quite fit into this episode. Patrick, you are nonetheless a huge help. Thank you, sir. See you on our Hawaii. Okay, great. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station, in partnership with Reddit. Our show is a dream realized by Jessica Alpert, who, when we found out she went to school with Beyonce, she described herself as... Old school cool. Iris Adler is our executive producer, and our constant fear of disappointing her is how we... Get motivated. Mix and sound design by Paul Vikas and John Parati, who, when they mix a new episode for us, they tell us to... Listen to this. 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 Our web producer is Megan Kelly, who, when we asked her if she wanted to join the Endless Thread team for a picnic, she responded, Have we met? Michael Pope is our advisor at Reddit, who, in his wisdom, said we should all aspire to be... Animals being bros. Our interns are Josh Luckins and James Lindbergh. By the way, James basically conceptualized and made this entire episode happen. James, high five through the recording studio glass. Our theme music is by Squelcher. On Reddit, we are endless underscore thread. If you want to give us a juicy story tip so we can tell it like we did today, you can hit us up there. Our show is produced by Josh Swartz, also my co-host and producer, Amory Sievertson. I'm senior producer and host, Ben Brock-Johnson. I'll let myself out. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of a recent episode on the future of businesses considering risks related to ESG or environmental social governance. Here's host Kurt Nickish. What's the time frame of these risks? Because Wall Street is like famously short term, right? We're talking about end of the century. Why does that matter to investors or why does that matter on Wall Street? Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the climate change debate gets a little bit misleading or at least lost in the weeds, where, like, because climate science historically often talked about the year 2100 as an important benchmark, I think that got stuck in people's minds as, like, climate change is a faraway risk. We'll deal with that yeah, when we get exactly. We'll cross that bridge when we get Exactly. There. I mean, open up the news on, like, any day. I mean, Dubai this morning had been a torrential rainfall and, like, really disrupted the airport. So climate change is here now. 
And then it starts to matter, you know, climate change is relevant to different business actors depending on those business actors' different horizons. Some business actors necessarily have longer horizons than others, thinking primarily of pension funds that have duties to pay out to retirees who right now are young. They have a fund that's dated to the year 2055. Yes, my retirement account is, has a target date of 2050, exactly, which is hilariously the net zero target date also. The time frame really depends a lot on the industry. I mean, for a bank on a one-year loan to an oil and gas company, I mean, there's no risk. And so we shouldn't be talking about the financial risk, right, from climate risk. We see it in agriculture today already. And most agriculture is in publicly listed companies. And a lot of it's like, you know, private companies and smaller farms. I think the insurance industry is dealing with it today and deciding whether they're not going to write insurance in places. And so 2100 is a long time away. I won't be here. Madison, you probably won't even be here either. You know, there's things that are happening today which make it very real. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Merotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.